Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 1, and the beginning of a brand new season of 24 episodes worth of scintillating tales. I'm your host, Otis Gyre. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing six stories for you about Halloween night horrors, phantasmal flames, dreadful discoveries, Upstairs entities, disturbing disappearances, and righteous revenge. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first three terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it is time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us from author William Dolphin. In it, we meet some children out and about on All Hallows' Eve, who are rewarded with far more than a basket of sweets when they make a grisly discovery. Without further ado, I present to you 
the body on Main Street. This happened on a Halloween when I was in high school. I say that so you can understand why some of the people acted the way they did. You know how Halloween gets. All sort of pranks are pulled, people cover themselves with fake blood, etc. When you see a body lying in the street on Halloween, sure, you're shocked at first. But the shock quickly changes to a variety of different emotions depending on the individual. Some people laugh, some people shake their heads and roll their eyes. My friend Cindy got angry, thinking it was a mean trick to pull. That's why it was 20 minutes to 9 before anybody bothered to take a closer look. I was handing out candy, too old in my mind to be out in costume, begging for treats like a little kid. Cindy was over because her parents and mine had gone to a party hosted by some mutual friends, and Cindy was too skittish to stay at home alone. I'm glad she was with me. Our town was small, the kind with a single main street that runs straight through it. It was off the highway, not a shortcut anywhere, and you can walk from one side of town to the other in less than an hour, so there wasn't any traffic to speak of. I still don't know where the body came from. I remember I'd just given the last Kit Kat to some kid dressed as Batman and went inside to refill the bowl. When I came back out, there was a body lying in the street. The Batman kid was staring at it from the sidewalk, and I went down and joined him for a moment before shaking my head and going back up to the porch. Cindy came back from the kitchen with sodas and gave a squeal when she saw it. She nearly dropped the glasses. After she recovered, she yelled at the body in the road, Hey, asshole, you're going to get run over. It just lay there. Tommy, from a block down, came by on his bicycle, pedaled a circle around the body, then rode over to us and hopped off. He was wearing a cape and had his hair slipped back. I think he was supposed to be a vampire, but he didn't have any fake fangs in his mouth. Who's that in the road? He asked us. Some asshole, Cindy said loudly, so the person in the road would hear. Is he dead? Tommy asked. I shrugged and offered him a Kit Kat. He nodded at me, got back on his bike, and circled the body once more. He stopped for a moment, but seemed reluctant to get closer. I think he had the same thought we did. Whoever got too close would get the scare of their life when the body jumped up and grabbed them. Instead, he looked over at us, shrugged, and rode off. If you don't get up, we're going to call the cops, Cindy called out. She stood on the porch for a moment and then started adding inside, saying very strongly, That's it. I'm calling the cops. I sat down on the porch swing and just watched the body. I was starting to feel a little edgy, like what if the person was really hurt and would we get in trouble for not helping? But every time I started to think I should get up and really check, another kid would show up and say trick or treat and then make some silly comment about the guy in the road or the fantastic dummy we'd put out and my brain would whisper, He's just waiting for you to go out there and touch him, and then he's going to jump up and yell, Boo! And you'll scream bloody murder, and he'll laugh and tell everyone at school on Monday. Cindy came back out on the porch. All right, buddy, the cops are on the way. They're going to be pissed that you wasted their time. I looked at her anxiously, and she scowled at the body, then looked at me, rolled her eyes, and shook her head. No, the police were not coming. At one point, a car actually did come down the street. Cindy and I sat there, huddled on the porch, nervously waiting to see if the body would get up, if the car would even see it and stop, or run it over, or if the driver would get out and check. The car slowed as it got near the body, but instead of stopping, they weaved around it and continued on their way. Nobody believed it. 
Even the grown-ups who brought their kids by looked at it incredulously. I think Cindy and I were partially to blame for their doubting, because if it weren't a hoax, wouldn't the two girls on the porch be doing something? Around 8.38, Billy Mayo and his friend Joe came along. Billy was the type of kid who preferred tricking to treating. If you didn't watch your jack-o'-lanterns closely, you'd inevitably find them smashed by Billy's clodhoppers. Billy saw the body in the road, looked at us on the porch, all wide-eyed, and staring at him to see what he would do. Then he gave the body a real hard kick in the midsection. He held his foot there, smirking at us for a second, then looked down and kicked the body again, lighter this time. Then he nudged it. What is this full of? Leave? He yelled over to us. We just sat there like deer in headlights and watched. He tried to roll the body over with one foot. Fuck, this is heavy, he said. Then he reached down and grabbed it around the shoulders to flip it over. Joe bent over to help, grabbing the legs. Cindy and I were leaning forward in our seats, trying to get a look. Billy got the body turned over, then dropped it heavily, causing Joe to drop his end. They both lurched back. Jesus, fuck! Billy yelled, holding his hands up like he was trying to keep them away from the body. In the streetlight, I could see his hands and his jacket were all red and slick. Joe was turned away, and it sounded like he was vomiting. I dropped a candy bowl, spilling Kit Kats all over the porch. Cindy dropped her drink, shattering the glass. Both our jaws were dropped, too. We had no idea what was going on, but we were riveted, watching it all unfold. Maybe I should call the police now. Cindy whispered absently. She got up, moving stiffly, and went into the house. I just sat there. All I could see was red. The front of the body was nothing but dark, wet red. Billy was standing there, his arms up in front of him, just looking at the blood all over them. Joe kept puking and fell over. Police arrived minutes later. The ambulance took a while, since the nearest hospital was a good thirty miles away. They covered the body with a sheet. Billy and Joe were escorted gently away, where they were talked to quietly until their parents arrived. Needless to say, Cindy and I were thoroughly interrogated. What did we see? When did we notice it? Why didn't we call the police immediately? The police officer who questioned me was very nice. He told me that we weren't in trouble, but that in the future we should always err on the side of caution. I asked him who the body was, but he didn't know. Nobody knew who it was. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
I hope you enjoyed The Body on Main Street by author William Dolphin. If you enjoyed that story, do me a favor and check out the author's collection of 35 terrifying tales entitled Don't Look Away, available now on Amazon.com. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash don't look to pick up your copy of this fantastic, fully illustrated collection of his best short stories today. Thank you for your support of the author and of indie horror. Up next, we've got a second twisted tale for you. This one from author Michael Page. In it, we'll follow a small-town police officer as he investigates a mysterious crime. And where the more he looks into things, the more questions he has. Without further ado, I present to you The Angels Burned. When I was a kid, my stepfather asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. A magician, I answered quickly with worldwide clarity. He huffed at that answer. That ain't a job, son. Wearing makeup and doing a little dance at parties ain't a job to seek. Best start looking yonder. I took exception to that and returned with, I said a magician, not a clown, asshole. That earned me a good throttling, something I've always had a knack for goading. Sad to say he ended up being right about that fact, as my dreams of being the next Harry Handcuff Houdini, they never came to pass. So I took his advice and looked yonder. Eventually, that led me to becoming a cop. Honestly, I wish I could tell you a noble reason behind that choice, like the desire to help my community or saving the world one life at a time. But as my mother used to put it, only the devil fiddles lies. I spent six years working in the graveyard patrol. Shifts were divvied up based on seniority, landing me in the nocturnal hours. I didn't mind much, at least not at the time, anyway. First watch started at 22.30, 10.30 p.m., and ended at 07.15, 7.15 a.m. I'd monitor the empty streets. Nothing kept me company but coast-to-coast radio and the mind-numbing click of my turn signal. Every hour or so, dispatch generously sent out a safety check to keep us sharp and awake. Kind of them, but not all that necessary. Nothing far-reaching ever happened in Colby, much less at 02.30 in the morning. With a population of 5,500, crimes were low and life fairly slow-paced. Occasionally, petty crimes ran the gambit of traffic offenses, domestic disturbances, or underage drinking. In a town with little to offer, its younger cliques, alcohol took precedence. We were as rural as Thomas County had to offer, halfway to everywhere. No tall trees or rolling hills, just blue sky kissing prairie. There's no place like home. At 02.45 in the morning, the soft robotic voice of dispatch radioed a 21.37.21, criminal trespass. Even before the details, I already had a hunch where I'd be heading. I pulled into the interstate, pushed up to 70 and held it there as the town lights became spectral dots in the rear view. At 15 minutes south, the silos of the Windsor Mill grain elevator were inevitably visible. Once upon a time, the huge structures were used to stockpile grain, thousands by the bushel. But in an unforeseen tragedy, a fire ripped its way through the facility, killing four workers in the process. Left in financial ruin, the elevator was shut down and condemned, but not quite abandoned. Its old, charred skeleton still belonged to the owner, Ralph Windsor, the same man who made the distress call tonight. The place had naturally become a beacon for tourists to explore and hoodlums to tag, so for Windsor, trespassing calls were typical. 
Despite his relationship with the place equating to a dead limb, he never stopped safeguarding his parish property. He pulled a cruiser onto the dirt path that sloped toward the fenced entrance. Ralph Windsor's hunched figure was waiting by his truck. He was a burly man, face pinched with wrinkles, and a mat of hair that rested greasily over his scalp. Evening, Ralph, I greeted, crunching up the gravel toward him. Kid sneaking in the pool again? He eyed me humorously and tweezed out another cigarette, a nasal twang guiding his voice. Something else, I reckon. I followed him through the gate and across the foregone lot. The silos stood in fifteen-foot clusters above us, enormous gravestones marred by the great ablaze. Adjacent to them was the decrepit ruins of the warehouse, its roof collapsed in sunder, and lower half was reclaimed by nature. A breeze of rust-scented wind scraped my nostrils. The incident had brought to life some safety violations, as well as poor evacuation measures. To this day, Windsor is never keen on those details, not even after questioning by the media. Despite pushing 83... He still had a firm, farmer-like stride. Got a hole in my fence. Probably on camera, too. I heard him sneaking around the basement area. Figured it was just some little shit's come to tag. Nah, these were men hooting and hollering things down there that I'd never heard in my life. A bunch of gibberish speak. We walked along the haggard north side of the silos and came to a gaping hole punched into the concrete. The entrance to the basement. How many would you say you heard? I asked him. Maybe three, four of them. I would have gone down there to scare him off, but his sun-dried face slackened. It sounded like there was a tussle, like they was fixing to hurt someone down there. Does it sound like they have weapons? Any gunshots? He shook his head and replied, Not that I heard crawled through the hole, springing up a cloud of dust at my ankles. You head on home, Ralph. I'll take it from here. Whatever he muttered uh, while walking off never reached me. Shining the flashlight ahead, I traced the graffiti-festooned walls. There was always more when I came here, like a new generation added to the mold. The passage to my left opened up to a wide concrete room lined with machinery, Ancient pulleys used once to hoist things up the silos funnel, now caked in soot and grime like a fossil's vertebrae. As I moved to inspect the area, a distant sound resonated from the shaft behind me. I followed after it, kicking up puffs of ash dust with every step. Even though I'd often been called to this place, it was still very easy to get lost in the tunnels that snaked beneath the structures. It was like walking down a dark throat to a stomach that still smelled of fermented grain. Large patches of the walls were still smeared black from where the fire had eaten them. Cut off from the outside world, I was left in the muffled thud of my footsteps and the excessive pounding sounds. Then something foul hit my nose, a putrid odor that changed the dark throat into a dark colon. I blew it out, clamping a hand over my mouth to keep from breathing it. My light flickered, burning away the shadows, until it settled on a shape slumped against the wall. A man. His neck was drooped and hanging at a bent angle. He was facing a room across from him, as though he had collapsed backwards out of it and into the wall. Judging by the blood behind his head, it was a nasty spill. The hoodie he wore was peppered with holes, the knife's handle still jutting out of one of them. Stab wounds, at least six of them. I realized then that the wretched odor I had been smelling was coming from his bowels. Just as I moved to check him for signs of life, a loud thud came from the room he sat across from. Only this time, it was punctured by a resounding wet crunch. Hand on my sidearm, I leaned over my shoulder and glanced inside of the room. It was pitch black, and within the dimness, the 
figure's arm rose and fell violently. Another sound echoed, the squelch of something organic. I veered around the corner, gun drawn, and flashlight scattering the darkness. Police! Hands up! Something heavy hit the floor. The figure drew back sharply and clambered away. A white face sheened with blood. Please! The man whimpered, eyes bulging with panic. A piece of duct tape was noosed around one of his wrists. I ordered him to the ground. He didn't protest. Sprawled out between us was another man, a red, spongy ditch where his face should have been. Spurts of blood still pulsed from the sagging folds. Bits of bone, teeth, and brain perforated the floor. The left eye had been smashed into the nasal cavity, and resting next to its deformed figure was the murder weapon, a sizable chunk of stained concrete. I looked away. Oh, I had to. The need to vomit squeezed my gut and shrank back. It was for moments like these, in the raw grid of chaos, that we were trying to steal our nerves. Death was part of the job, and even in quiet Colby, you witnessed all of its guises. Control the situation, my instructor used to say. Take a breath, put the thoughts somewhere else, board them off somewhere for a therapist to pry open. I don't give a shit, just get the job done. I moved past the corpse and cuffed the trembling man, reciting the Miranda as I frisked his pockets. Do you understand these rights? He said nothing, his gaze flat to the floor and hundreds of miles away. I hoisted him back to his feet and asked again, louder this time. Answer the question. Do you understand these rights? They wanted to make me an angel. He murmured, the blood on his neck, not even his own, already drying into a flaky crust. A bright, shiny angel. Can you tell me what your name is? His eyes swiveled toward me, meshed in brown veins. Angels, angels, angels. That's what he kept saying. I didn't want it. They were bad people. Drugs, maybe LSD, or ketamine. Something had to have been racing around his system jumbling up all the parts. That was typically the case for suspects like this, flashing in and out of coherence, like the devil himself were whispering sweet nothings in their ear. To make matters worse, the man had nothing on him. No license, no credentials, nothing to his name but the shirt on his back, sodden and red. 1040 to dispatch. I've got a few bodies here at location Windsor Mill Grain Elevator. Possible homicide. Suspect is in the custody. Copy that, the voice crackled. Sending available units your way. I steered the man toward the exit, blocking out his deranged mutterings. At that point, I'd have given my left testicle for some fresh air. And something caught my eye. A large circle inlaid with six concentric rings. It looked like more than a mere tag not sprayed, but smeared all over the wall in a red waxy residue. Gray, chalky writings filled each ring that almost seemed to lean and spiral toward the circle's center. I couldn't come close to reading it. The writing was too jagged and obscure, like a cave drawing. A mild jitter rolled down my neck, which only worsened as I traced the walls, finding the same sigil scrawled again and again. Cultish crests made up of celestial shapes. A few empty jars lined the corner, one of them in shattered pieces. Something sprang into my peripheral, a fold of shadow snapping forward. I whipped the light toward it. A great cat was poised at the entrance. The mouse had just caught still wriggling in its jaws. I kicked some dust at it, sending the scrawny thing bolting down the dark halls. Without warning... The cuffed man lurched forward as if to vomit, ripping right out of my grasp. I went for my taser, fully expecting him to break for the exit. If only that was what happened. Instead, he ran the length of the room, circling it over and over. After a good three or four times, his running slowed and altered into squirming wild fits like a swarm of bees were smothering him. 
Considering his broken bulb of a mind, I wasn't that shocked. It was then, as a horrible scream rushed out of his throat, that I noticed something other than blood and shit in the air, something burning. Plumes of smoke had started to waft from his clothes. All at once, a trail of blue flame shot up his leg and lapped up his sides. It happened so fast, I barely had time to catch the flames unfurl across his chest. Within seconds, he was engulfed by them. Hot air spewed outward in a sort of whoomp. The room flared up, spotlighting the copious sigils and our large, misshapen shadows. On the ground! Roll on the ground now! I shouted over the piercing echo of his agony. His lit, bony frame flailed about the room until it smacked into the wall and flopped onto the floor, warming around wildly. Before I could move to stamp the flames out, it had already risen to a sputtering thicket, a course of dying cells. The human smoke glazed the ceiling and gave rise to a slew of new scents, fat frying on a stove, burning rubber, and pennies coated in charcoal. Fumes smeared my face with sweat and prickled the inside of my throat. The flames guttered, feeding off the air around him, and beneath them his screams had changed into a guttural hiss, the sound of a tongue finally starting to sizzle. I needed an extinguisher, a bucket of water, a puddle of fucking piss, anything. Considering my options, I pawed for my gun and unholstered it. At that rate, it was either let the poor bastard burn or put him out of his misery. Already straining to make out the human shape within the blaze, I took aim, held my breath, and pulled a trigger. His body convulsed once from the first bullet and went limp after the second. I pried my eyes from the sight, realizing only then how much they hurt. There hadn't been any gas, no substance drenched over his clothes, and no device in his pockets. It just happened. Poof! I needed air, a moment to let my wits fall back into place. Then he started to move again. At first, I passed it off as his body curling itself into uh, charring paper. Now the man rolled over, struggled to his knees, and stood back up. I was convinced the smoke had finally reached my brain and choked it. The man who had burned to death, the one whom I'd shot twice, was now standing, ramrod straight, staring back at me. His face was tight and blackened with an angry crust. Flakes of his own carbonized skin danced in the air. His now-melted eyes ran down his cheeks in thick trails. What skin remaining was pulling apart like melting wax. Soft, sticky, patches of his bones were exposed and browning into dull, rusty colors. But despite how charred his features were, I could still make out the widest of smiles across his face. Head tilted, happy as a clam, as though blissfully unaware of the fire digesting him. A smile unfit for humanity. Mad thoughts flashed through my mind, repeating the same words. An angel. A bright and shiny angel. The man's gnarled head cocked this way, and that as though soaking up the room for the first time. No, I, I take that back. At that point, the shriveled, crusty face of the thing in front of me belonged to something else. It was eyeing me somehow behind the brittle film that filled its empty sockets. A look of awareness. This wasn't a freak accident, not some trick of the light, but a transition. I could hear the disembodied voice of a narrator describe the scene. Watch carefully as it moves from one stage of its life cycle to the next. A beautiful metamorphosis. Yes, that's what it was. New life. The sleeping god finally able to stir. I didn't feel the gun go off, but I knew I clicked the trigger three times. Maybe more. The flames wobbled as the thing staggered back, several new holes now in its chest. Still, it did not drop that jovial smile. 
from behind, the handcuffs snapped as the chain link pulled feebly apart. Somewhere in my thoughts, a thin shriek resonated. I expected a reaction from what I'd done, maybe even retaliation. Instead, the thing turned away from me and put its focus on the largest of the sigils at the back of the room. Drunkenly, it hobbled toward it. Black, disintegrated clods that were once closed fell from its frame. When it reached the circle, I could only watch as it practically fell into it, went limp, and began to break apart. Layer by layer, its body crumbled and lost its structure into powdery fragments. A great heap of charcoal dust formed at its feet in mounds of black sand. As more of its shape collapsed, the flames slackened and continued to wither until both were no more. The room once again returned to darkness. A voice chattered over the radio, only to join the faint frequency of my shock. I shined my light over the sigil, heat still radiating off of it, and scarred over its center was the vague silhouette of a man left behind like an atomic shadow. On May 6th, 2020, at approximately 0200, a great cargo van pulled off beside the road and parked on the north end of the Windsor Mill grain elevator. According to the camera feed, two males left the vehicle, opened their trunk, and dragged out a third unidentified male, appearing bound by some means. They proceeded to cut their way through the fence and enter the grounds. Both individuals were later identified as Peter and Elliot Mosley, brothers. After their arrival at approximately 0245, I, Officer Tucker, was dispatched in reference to the disturbance. By the time I arrived on the scene and located both suspects, they had succumbed to severe injuries, one by several stab wounds, the other by a crushed skull from a slab of concrete. Both brothers were pronounced dead at the scene. A number of symbols were painted around the room, signifying some unknown ceremonial practices. It can be deduced that the third male broke free from his restraints and killed both men. I quickly secured the man but was unable to question him, most likely due to narcotics. Before I could bring him into custody, by some unknown means, he had let himself ablaze perhaps by some sort of suicide. Suicide. That's what I called it in the report. It felt so wrong. A counterfeit truth. I could swallow easier. And yet, it could not wall me off from the nightmares. Practically, any look of sleep I could get was jolted aside by the stink of burning hair or the sight of a man-shaped figure in the corner smiling ever so wildly. I requested the body cam footage and showed it to a buddy of mine at the station. His response, a passive shoulder roll. The guy was hopped up on God knows what, of course. He couldn't feel his nerves melting. By that point, he was probably thinking, Boy, it's stuffy in here. It's crazy what the shit out there can do to people, almost like it makes them superhuman or something. I eyed him irritably. Would it also make them combust? He laughed. I didn't. I tried to convince myself he was right. I really did. But it was no use. Somewhere in all of this, there was a hole that kept growing deeper. As I put in the request for a lateral transfer, my paranoia only worsened. I feared that whatever was inside that man maybe something in the air, had also slipped into me, festering, waiting to ignite, a bright, shiny angel. Inevitably, I'd have to go back to that place if another trespassing happened, and God knows it would. Whenever that thought returned, the world around me only went grayer. The identity of the kidnapped man was still working its way through our system, so I looked into the brothers, Peter and Elliot Mosley. No such luck. Both their records were clean. The two had made the drive to Colby 
from a small town near Colorado. I checked the history of the town, searching for any house fires, occult crime, or calamities that struck the residents. What can I say? I was desperate. My search led me to an abandoned, burned-down church that rested on the outskirts of the community. Minuscule as it was, a lead was a lead. I honestly didn't think I'd find anything in the old rotted woodwork and splintered flooring, but lo and behold, tucked away along the scorched outer wall was the familiar faded shape of their sigil, the exact one I'd seen. It was hard to tell, but it almost looked as though the black smear of a hand had been streaked over it. About the symbol's meaning, I was able to find someone online who transcribed one of its rings using an old Hungarian alphabet system. Free of flesh. I don't know how far I'll get in all of this, and frankly, I'm terrified to keep going. What did it all mean? Were the others out there doing this to people? Was it happening now, in another forgotten, burnt-up place? Despite all my questions, one thing was certain to me. In the dark halls of Windsor Mill, even the angels burn. I hope you enjoyed The Angels Burned by author Michael Page. Up next, we've got a third taste of frightening fiction for you from author Seth Paul. In it, what should have been a fun-filled outing for a father and his son on a scouting weekend turns terrifying when geocaching, Dad discovers something that certainly isn't his idea of buried treasure. Without further ado, I present to you The Clocking. I think the proudest moment in my life is when my son found the treasure on his scout's geocache weekend in the woods. My worst moment is what I found at the same time. Jacob had been excited since the first moment his troop announced they were going to be doing this. He'd never been the most confident kid in the world, but when I signed him up for scouts, he took to it so naturally you'd have thought he was a born leader. He was made captain of Red Team, and along with all the other captains, he was allowed to take home the tablet they would be using to mark the coordinates from the treasure hunt and practice with it. They would not be assigned coordinates right away. Each team would be assigned a clue, and the answer to the clue would be the coordinates to the first box. The box would contain a small reward for each team, as well as the clue for the coordinates to the next box. This box would then lead to the third and final box, which would contain the grand prize for the winning team. There was a lot of speculation as to what the third box held. Some low-balled and thought it was just a new badge for the winning team. Some thought it was a trip to a museum or pizza shop. Jacob thought it would be a cool camping tool, like a compass or something similar. Me, I, I didn't bother trying to figure it out. My job for the day was just to watch the team, along with a few other parents, just to make sure nobody cheated. The Saturday we all went out to the woods was a misty and gray late spring morning, cool enough still to wear a light jacket, which I was, but it promised to heat up as the day went on. My son was as ready for things as he could possibly be, having spent the last few nights practicing around the house, making his own clues and locating every crayon he'd asked me to hide away somewhere. He was pretty good at it, and I was hoping he and his team would win. While the scout troop leaders got the groups together, handing out colored jerseys and serving up juice boxes and small bags of snacks, I looked up as far into the woods as I could see, the mist made things hazy a few hundred feet out, and the hilly terrain didn't help things much. I hoped the GPS systems worked very well, because it wouldn't be good to see any kids go missing. Once all the teams were corralled, 
and the rules explained for the last time, the first clue was given out. All the teams dived into a huddle and started working on them. I listened, but obviously couldn't give any hints. Not that the red team needed them. Jacob's practice paid off, and they wasted no time getting the first clue sorted out. They were already on their way into the woods by the time the other teams had written down the first number. I and three other chaperones followed along, watching to see how they did. They walked up into the woods, Jacob leading the way, arriving at a clearing slightly up a hill with a large rock in the center. As he neared the rock, the tablet started beeping, the app on it acting like a metal detector, getting louder and faster as he moved closer to the right spot. There, in a small crack in the rock, was what looked like a plastic bag. Jacob pulled it out and the team crowded around, seeing what was inside. Inside the bag was a box, and inside the box was a clipboard for them to sign, along with a couple other baggies filled with Sour Patch Kids. They took one of the bags, signed the clipboard, and put it back where they found it. The second clue was inside the bag of candy, and this clue was a little harder to figure out than the last one. They needed about ten minutes before they got the answer. I already saw a green team coming up the ridge towards them, so they had to hurry if they wanted to get the next clue in time. The second box was found in a picnic area, underneath a trash can near the restrooms. This one had another clipboard, several boxes of trail mix, and the third clue. With green team hot on their heels, they needed to work fast. I thought they were going to be stumped, but then Jacob looked at the clue and shouted, Wait, that last one? I think I know where that is. It's by Benchley Cave. Get our stuff. We'll put in the numbers as we go. Benchley Cave wasn't so much a cave as a small rock formation that went into the side of a hill by about 15 feet. I remember going there as a teenager near dusk with my girlfriend at the time. There was a custom at the time to throw something in there for somebody to find later. Some things grosser than others. We never did. Before we could, we got kicked out by rangers who said they didn't want us starting trouble or fires or something. The other parents and I followed after Jacob and his team, reaching the flat area where the cave was located. He wandered up to the cave entrance, but the beeps got colder there, so he moved on. I guess actually putting it inside the cave would have made things too obvious for the last location. Turns out it was even trickier than that. There was a flat rock that the kids had to lift and discover a dugout hole where the box was located. Once they did, the cry that went up had all of the adults there clapping. Red team had done it and with plenty of time to spare before any other team was even there. Before we even opened the box, the boys wanted us to take their picture, smiling and posing with the sealed container. I took as many as I could, but reminded them they had to open it and sign the clipboard if they wanted to make sure they won fair and square. The box opened, the clipboard was signed, and the last baggie was opened to reveal movie passes. Generic movie passes, good for free admission to a Saturday morning show. The other kids were ecstatic, but I could tell Jacob was a little disappointed. He wanted something a little more worthwhile than a movie pass. To be honest, I thought they could have done a little better myself. The other teams arrived and signed the paper, and before they could act jealous of Red Team, the scout leader told them they'd be having a picnic right here, by the cave. As the hot dogs and burgers were getting warmed up, I saw that even though Jacob was playing with his friends, he seemed a little down. I figured it had to do with the prize, but I didn't know what I could do to cheer him up. Then it clicked. I wondered if people still kept up the custom of throwing something into the cave. The kids weren't allowed to go in, but I was pretty sure nobody would mind if I disappeared in there for a few minutes. For something the size of a living room, the cave still got dark toward the back, 
and the gloom of the rainy day didn't help much. I shook my cell phone to turn it on and shone it down on the floor. I almost lost my grip when I saw what was on the floor. There were a few things in the cave. A wallet, a watch, a few coins, an old switchblade. But then there was another object, along with a smear of blood. I thought maybe about calling the police, but the closer I looked, it was clearly not a human injury. The skull, sitting in the midst of the dried blood, was animal in shape, but nothing I had ever seen before. I didn't even know how it could have been attacked, and by the looks of it, eaten right down to the bone, since it had predatory jaws and long, sharp teeth. I would have hated to run into that thing when it was still alive, but it was still incredibly fascinating to look at. If it was some undiscovered animal, it'd be something truly unique. It would certainly brighten Jacob's day. I lifted it out of the dirt. It seemed stuck for a moment, but after a little work it pulled free. I turned it around, studying it. The skull itself was pretty clean, save for some blackened bits stuck to the bottom, and it wasn't bloody despite where it had been sitting. I took off my jacket and wrapped it up before leaving the cave with it over my shoulder. It was warm enough that it wouldn't look strange to anyone, so nobody would think I was walking out of the park with anything. I waited until we got back into the car and drove out of the park before I handed Jacob my jacket, which he unfolded and revealed the skull. He was a little spooked by it at first, but when he asked me what it was and I couldn't tell him, his attitude changed. Suddenly, he wanted to know what it was and told me he wanted to look it up once we got home. He and I spent quite some time looking up stuff on the Internet, the skull sitting next to the computer monitor in his room, but we still came up dry. Not even sites talking about Bigfoot and other cryptids, a word I didn't even know until that day, showed anything like what we'd found began to wonder if maybe we had stumbled across a movie prop, or some kind of hoax. A very weird and pointlessly elaborate hoax, but a hoax. I couldn't help but thinking that that wasn't the case, though. It looked and felt like bone, even if we couldn't figure out what it came from. We finally gave up for the night and decided we would have dinner, and he could tell Mom and his older sister everything that had happened that day on the geocache hunt. I couldn't have even tried to keep him quiet, though he didn't talk about the skull. That was just for us, until the time was right, I guessed. I was doing some spreadsheet work in my home office that I got stuck with over the weekend when Jacob came to my door, pale. Dad, there's a weird noise in my room. Can you check it out? Jacob wasn't the kind of kid to make up excuses to stay up late or get attention. But even as I got up to take a look, I didn't quite know what kind of noise to expect. We went into his bedroom, and as soon as we went in, I could hear it. A slight clocking noise, like a castanet, but quieter. I looked under his bed, opened the closet, even checked the floor for a water pipe issue, but found nothing. Then it got louder. Something in the room was definitely making the sound but neither of us could. The skull. Jacob gasped at the same time. I noticed a slight motion in the jaw. The sound was the teeth snapping together, lightly, but growing ever stronger and louder as we stared at it. It had to be a movie prop. Nothing dead could move like that, not without help. The teeth became even more animated, the clacking growing louder and louder. I moved toward it, seeing if maybe I could find a cord to wrap around it to get it to stop until we could find the off switch. As I grabbed it, there was a sound at Jacob's window. The blind was closed, but the window was cracked open to let the night breeze in. I told Jacob to turn off the light so I could see what might have caused it, hoping to tell him it was a bird or a tree branch, even though there was no tree outside his window. When I lifted the blind, what greeted me 
was a dark, hulking shape, fingers already forcing their way through the screen into the window. I slammed the window shut as hard as I could and ushered Jacob out of the room. My wife came out of the bedroom asking what the matter was, and when I told her to lock herself in and call the police, she called Jacob over and closed the door. I heard her lock click, and then I heard Jamie, our oldest, locking her door too. I closed Jacob's door, but with no lock on this side, I couldn't do anything here to keep it out. I then realized I still had the skull in my hand. I dropped it, ran downstairs, and went into the kitchen to find a knife to protect myself. I'd told my wife to call the cops, but the cops didn't seem like they were prepared for something like this. I'd found a butcher knife in the silverware drawer when I heard the clacking again. I went back to the living room where the skull lay, toppled over, having fallen down the staircase, now lying in front of the fireplace. I heard something shuffling from the chimney. Looking around quickly, I saw the hall closet a little ways away, and I jumped in. I watched through the crack in the door as the blackish stuff on the bottom of the skull grew into a small, tentacle-looking mass, placing the skull upright again. It started clacking and jumping like crazy, and a large thing slithered down the chimney, unrolling itself into a shape roughly seven feet tall. That was all I wanted to see, but I couldn't look away as the thing came closer to the clacking skull, grabbing it, and it placed it back on its body, right where the head should be. I now realized it had been headless when it came down the chimney. I nearly vomited as a squelch came from the tentacles, reattaching itself to its neck, and slimy flesh began to regrow on its surface. I shut the door all the way, knife at the ready, hoping it did not go upstairs, that it would stay here and leave them alone. I had taken the skull, after all. If it was mad, it would be my fault. I didn't have to wait long, as the closet door flew open, and it stared at me with its bulging eyes, its ragged, fleshless lips, its horrible breath, and its scream of anger. I thrust the knife forward. It screamed again, but as I pushed forward, I felt a sharp pain in my side, and I blacked out. I awoke in the hospital. I had a large wound in my side, heavily bandaged, but I was also greeted by three very happy faces. My family was okay, and Jacob held my hand. Nobody else but me had seen the attacker, so nobody really knew what came into our house that night. I just said it was some crazy guy, and he attacked me with the skull before making off with it. My wife and daughter believed it, but Jacob didn't. He didn't see the attacker, but he knew about the skull and what it was doing. My side is now healed from what I can only assume was some kind of claw or bite from when I had rushed it, trying to defend myself while terrified at what came after me, and I still am. See, I've been trying to find a way to put my home in the market. I tell my wife I just don't feel safe in the neighborhood, but she insists the kids have all their friends here, and if we just buy a security system, she suggests panoptics, I'm not so wedded to them, we should be okay. But she doesn't fear what I fear, that it may come back someday. She didn't see those eyes, to know what it was capable of. When I go to sleep, I think I can hear clacking. I pray it's just my imagination. I just hope someday it isn't coming from under my bed. I hope you enjoyed The Clacking by author Seth Paul. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition 
of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Otis Jerry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Finally, don't forget to pick up a copy of author William Dolphin's collection of 35 terrifying tales. Don't Look Away, available now on Amazon.com. Or visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash don't look to get your own copy of the fully illustrated collection now. Thank you for your support of the author and of indie horror. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs>
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.